0: Well, then, looking to uh, God for his help and guidance, let's uh, turn to that passage we just read in the Gospel according to Luke and chapter 19. Come to seek and to save that which was lost. These, of course, are the words of Christ and they are written um, in connection with his meeting with Zacchaeus and as an explanation, actually, for his meeting with Zacchaeus. That meeting, to help us understand it, can be summed up as the Son of Man coming to seek and to save. That which is lost. Now, of course, this is a a very well known incident in the Bible. And the way that perhaps we normally think about it, we think about it as all about Zacchaeus seeking and finding the Saviour. And even our children know well the story of the uh, man who ran ahead of the crowd and climbed up into a tree to enable him to see the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about him looking for the Saviour, but of course it's not actually all about him looking for the Saviour at all. In fact, it's not so much Zacchaeus seeking and finding Christ, but Christ seeking and finding Zacchaeus. That's really where the emphasis falls in the passage. And uh, that comes through in these very words of our text, which close the passage. The Son of Man has come to seek out and to save that which is lost. That really, Christ says, is what is happening here today. Not someone who has gone to unusual lengths to find me, but rather me finding them. So it's really not about a sinner seeking a saviour, but a saviour seeking a sinner. But of course, every time someone comes to the Lord, both are true. The sinner must seek Christ, and Christ must seek out the sinner. And I think perhaps it might be the best way to approach the passage, if we just think of it under those two headings. If we start first from our own side, from the human side from the man's side, from Zacchaeus's side and see him seeking out the Saviour and then turn our attention to where the emphasis falls on the Saviour seeking out Zacchaeus. Now Christ said that he had come to seek and to save that which is lost and there's no doubt that Zacchaeus is lost. He is of course a sinner and when people refer to A certain group of people as tax collectors and sinners, they didn't really mean to distinguish the tax collectors too much from the sinners. The sinners were people who were even worse than the tax collectors, but the tax collectors were nearly there themselves. They were considered very much on the outside or beyond the pale. Now, of course, we're all sinners. It's important to remember that. We all transgress the word of God every day in thought, word, and deed. In fact, even in this small gathering here today, we could divide it up into two categories of lost sinners and saved sinners. We're all sinners, but some of us are saved sinners, some of us are lost sinners. Sacchaeus, uh, of course, when this day began, was still a lost sinner. And that's always a tragedy. A tragedy that any soul made in the image of God should be lost. A tragedy that anyone uh, made for heaven should end up in hell. But in some cases, it's a tragedy in a double sense. And by that I mean when someone was born into spiritual privilege and opportunity, someone who is a son of Abraham, Um, is lost and going towards a lost eternity. Christ calls him a son of Abraham and he tells us that that is a reason for even greater rejoicing that this man has come into the kingdom as a son of Abraham. That of course tells us a lot about him right away. Although he's a tax collector for Rome, he is a Jew and uh, most of us could identify very easily with his background. Um, He would have come from a religious home, not necessarily a believing home, but certainly a religious home. He would have learned passages of the Bible by heart, Uh, he would have been trained to do that, even when he would attend school in his local synagogue, he would learn there too. He would have attended church every single Sabbath day, or the local synagogue, which is effectively the local church. But although that's so, he obviously wandered from all that. Many of you did, I did myself, and it's a fearful thing to wander away from it. It's one thing to be lost, not having known anything. It's an entirely different thing to be lost, having known something. It's far better, if you can speak of it that way, to stand before the judgment seat of God, ignorant or relatively so, than to stand before the judgment seat of God knowing and having experienced and having seen the work of God all we like sheep have gone astray each one to his own way Zacchaeus chose his own path and he became a tax collector now I said quite a bit about tax collectors recently and I I don't want to say uh, too much today but I just want to emphasize a couple of things first of all when this expression, tax collector, appears, he's, he's not a religious tax collector. There were certain local taxes le- levied, and they were for the upkeep of the temple and the priesthood and so on. But the tax collector in the Bible refers to a person who's collecting civil taxes that are being raised for the Roman government. Now, there was lots of indirect taxation, and there were three sectors where the Romans raised their taxes in the Promised Land, in Caesarea, in Capernaum, and in Jericho. And uh, these places had tax collectors in considerable numbers. Now we're told in the passage that Zacchaeus is rich, and he would have been rich before he became a tax collector. The, The way the Romans operated the system was A kind of franchise system so that you presented yourself as someone who was willing to collect taxes for them. That involved paying a lot of money yourself to begin with. So it was a certain class of people who became tax collectors to start with and they were rich before they began. But they were highly unpopular people and it's really quite hard to emphasise just how unpopular these people were. Because the Jews, you'll remember, were fiercely nationalistic. They hated being occupied by the Romans. They were ashamed to be occupied by the Romans. Even those who were spiritual amongst them recognized that it was a shame to be occupied by the Romans and a rebuke from God and a chastisement. They hated the occupation. And if anyone from their own ranks was willing to gather taxes for the Romans they were not popular. I mean, if you could imagine many years ago when, for example, the English would gain uh, power over the Scots and taxes were levied, you could imagine the feeling if if a local Scot or something became a tax collector for the English, substitute any other country, you wouldn't feel too good about them. What they were doing wasn't illegal, but it certainly wasn't popular. And worse than that, the tax collectors had a bad reputation because they were fleecing the people. The Romans gave them a sum of money to raise, and their responsibility was to raise that sum. But it was a well-known fact that they raised more than that all the time. And they were extraordinarily wealthy because they fleeced the people. If you remember when John the Baptist started to preach the gospel, you'll remember that many tax collectors and sinners came to hear John the Baptist preach too. Uh, people often overlook that. They they contrast the ministry of Christ as attracting the tax collectors, but someone like John would not. Well, that's nonsense. Uh, the, the true gospel, when it's truly preached, will attract all kinds of people in whom the spirit of the Lord works. I mean, it's, it's just as simple as that. The tax collectors came to John and when they heard him preaching repentance they said, what shall we do? And you'll remember John's response. Exact no more than is appointed you. In other words, do your job honestly. Do it well. Don't do what you're known to be doing and that is fleecing the people. Again, this goes back to the psalm we sang at the beginning. Christianity is a practical religion. There's no real faith where there's no holiness. People who claim to be in Jesus or to have faith in Jesus and who don't have changed lives, well, their claim to faith is spurious. And that's why John says that if you're coming to me for a real baptism, if you're coming with spirituality and with intelligence, then he says, let that change be evident in your lives. Bring forth fruits, worthy of repentance. That's why when some of the Pharisees came to him to be baptised, he said you brood of vipers, what are you coming for? Not many would say that today when someone would come for baptism, but that's what he said. What are you coming to be baptised for? But the point for now is exact no more than is appointed you. Now Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector, we're told that he was a chief tax collector. Now that gave him even more prominence. That meant that he was responsible for other tax collectors in Jericho. That was a very, very responsible position. Responsible uh, to the Roman authorities, of course. That meant that other tax collectors, um, I'll put it the other way around, he was entitled to take a percentage of the other tax collectors. So as well as fleecing the people, he could take a substantial percentage of those who worked for him. So he's a very wealthy and very unpopular man. And of course, he's a very sinful man. Why? Because he's guilty of all that. When I'm saying tax collectors did that, I'm not saying Zacchaeus was different. Some people do point to what he says in verse 8, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Some people point to that and say, well, well, that's really how he lived. You know. He, he, was, he was doing the best he could all the time. But that isn't expressing how he lived. It's expressing his resolution as to how he's going to live from now onwards. Because the fact of the matter is that he has been taken by false accusation, and he wasn't restoring fourfold. And neither had he been giving half his goods to feed the poor. Far from it. He was himself guilty of all these things. Now I suppose this is one of these things that we can easily (coughs) overlook in ourselves. Because we have found a way perhaps to justify what we do. I wonder how many even in a, a respectable, and I don't mean that word in any derogatory fashion, i mean genuinely so, in a respectable town like away how many businessmen or businesswomen are guilty of not being strayed with financial dealings? How many of ourselves, even if we're not businessmen or women, are strayed in our financial dealings with others? How many of us have not paid what we should have paid. How many of us have charged more than we should have charged? I mean, can you honestly say that Zacchaeus is the only person to have done that? How many people in churches throughout the island today who are actually still coming to church may be guilty of this very thing? Uh, Who knows? God knows. God most certainly knows. But one thing for sure is that Zacchaeus has a very big house. He has plenty servants and he has loads of money. And he's not popular. I'm quite sure when he was trying to see Christ that nobody was interested in letting him through. It's a case of what are you doing here? But the amazing thing is that this man is looking for Christ. I don't think any of the translations really convey adequately that he was wanting to see him for who he is. It's not just that he was wanting a glimpse of him as though he was some kind of celebrity going through the city. No, he was wanting to see who he was, what kind of man he was, because he really wished to have something to do with him. He was drawn to him. It's rather like the Greeks um, in the final week of Christ's life, when they came up to Philip and said, "And Andrew, and they said, Sir, we would see Jesus." In other words, we, we want to speak with him, we want to meet him, and we want to know him." And really, with Zacchaeus it's like that. It's not a glimpse of a superstar uh, He is drawn to this person. And that, of course, raises the question, why? Why? Well, friends, it's to do with his soul. It's to do with his soul because not only is Zacchaeus lost, but he's beginning to feel lost. You're beginning to believe that he's lost and he's beginning to feel lost. I mean, sometimes you believe first and then feel. Sometimes you feel first and then you believe. You can't maybe explain why you feel lost. And really, when the work of grace starts in a person's heart, it's very, very difficult to, to understand it as, as that. If you were to ask the person who's beginning to feel disorientated or confused or beginning to feel guilty or a sense of purposelessness or aimlessness, if you were to ask them, what's wrong with you, you say, oh, do I think I'm all right? He is troubled. He is troubled. And he's troubled by two things to do with his wealth. And and the first thing is that he's hoarding it. He's got no word of the poor and the needy. And he's got no word of the cause of Christ either. It's a bit like the rich man that we looked at just a few weeks back, who had an abundant harvest and thought, what shall I do with my goods? You have much laid up for many years, take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. He was going to build bigger barns, storing up for the future and that was fine. No thought for the poor and the needy, no thought for the cause of Christ. That's beginning to bother him. And so is his dishonesty. Now I'm sure up till now he could justify it. Because you always can. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, I'm sure you have in life, that there's nothing you do that you can't justify. It doesn't matter how bad it is. There's a way of justifying it, and everybody needs to justify it at the end of the day, because conscience can be a powerful thing. So you have to keep conscience calm, and there are ways to do that. Any sin you commit, you'll justify. He can say, for example... Well, you know, these people are worthless anyway. It doesn't really matter, you know, if I take extra. Maybe a lot of them are lazy or a lot of them are good for nothing or they're not doing what they could themselves to earn. Why why shouldn't I charge just that little bit more of them? As for giving it all to the Romans, well, they're occupiers in the first place. I mean, what right have they to my taxes? Have you ever said what right has the government to your taxes? No? Well, I'm sure he said, what right, i they to my taxes. And so he kept quite a bit back back from himself. Of course, Paul told us to honour the king, and he told us to pay our taxes. Even when Christ was asked a trick question in connection with taxation, he said, to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to render to God what is God's. But of course, if we want to be dishonest, there are ways of doing it, and ways which will keep our conscience calm. So he could have breezed through his life not being particularly bothered. I'm sure most tax collectors did. And sometimes even when you're bothered by a sin, it's amazing that if other things don't work, a little religion can. So maybe a quick prayer at night or in the morning and it's all done with. And you can say, well, sometimes you can say, well, isn't it amazing how Roman Catholics live? You know, they can, they can go through a a whole week, and then they come and they go to confession, and it's okay, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? But then you see, there you are yourself, living your own life for a full day, and at night you say something like, "Forgive my sins," and and that's that. Then you see, it's a new day the next day. What's the difference? Well, there isn't any. There isn't any. A little religion can. Calm the soul. But obviously with Zacchaeus it's all going deeper than that. And it's all going deeper than that because when God starts to work in your heart it has to go deeper than that. He's being seriously convicted by his sin. Just like Paul was. Paul made an astonishing statement in Romans chapter 7 when he was writing a letter to the Romans. He said to them that I would never have known sin unless the law has said you shall not covet. Um, now why does he pick the tenth commandment? It's, it's, a, strange, it's a strange example to take in a way. It's, it's very hard to avoid the conclusion that Paul was beginning to be bothered. The the tenth commandment sure. those will not covet is our well they're, they're all commandments that go to the heart, but Covetousness in a way goes especially to the heart. I mean compare it, for example, with you shall not kill. There's a way of externalizing that commandment very, very easily, i.e., don't murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. There's a way of easily externalizing that commandment. Thou shalt not covet is not so easily externalise it. Goes, it goes right to the heart straight away. It goes right to the motive. Paul says I'd never have known it unless the law had said it. Now he's not making a, an intellectual statement or a logical statement there. He's, he's not saying, look, I would not understand that covetousness was a sin unless the law said thou shalt not covet. He's talking about the heart here. I mean, Paul knew the law inside out. No doubt about that. But he speaks of a time when the commandment came, he said, sin revived and I died. I thought all along, I was alive before God. I thought I was keeping the law. Of course not perfectly. But God was happy with it. God was happy with my law keeping. And he was happy with my life. But when the commandment came. What does he mean by that? When it really came. When it came with power. When God started to apply the law to my heart. Well sin revived. In other words I began to see sin. In fact, not only did I begin to really see my sin, but it actually seemed to to rebel against the law that was coming to me. That's the way sin works. I'm sure you've noticed it. Uh, You see it even in children. Once you tell them something, don't do this, they want to do it. But the same thing is true in your own heart. Sin revived and I died. I died to my hopes of justifying myself. That's why when you see Saul... Um, making that journey to Damascus to persecute the Lord's people he's not a happy man he's a man who's trying ever harder than he was before to be right with God because well he felt he was always right with God but now he's feeling that he may not be right with God so what does he do? Well he tries harder he tries harder now things are bothering him that never used to bother him at all things like covetousness because the Holy Spirit is at work in the Apostle Paul. Now, here's a man too who's beginning to be bothered by his life, beginning to be bothered by his dishonesty and by his covetousness. And these things can make us break other laws. I, I mentioned in my prayer today that there is a business. As far as I'm aware, I was just made aware of it, just very, very recently. There's a business opening today Aladdin's Cave. Uh, breaking a Sabbath that has been a blessing to countless people and is still a blessing to the town. That will certainly not be a blessing to him or her. I have no idea who the owner of it is, although the Lord's Day Society has written to the person. Um, But it won't prosper. It won't prosper and it cannot prosper. You you can't just break the Lord's commands like that. Especially commands that have such a serious impact on others and on the religious welfare of others. You just can't expect to break these commands with impunity. And we hope and pray genuinely. I mean, it's one thing maybe to take your business elsewhere, but it's another thing to remember at the same time that we pray for such a person. Uh, That person is in the grip of something, perhaps similar to to Zacchaeus, maybe not even as bad, not as advanced as that, but they're certainly prepared to put business interests ahead of the Lord's day's command. We need to pray that the hearts of such people can be changed. But the wonderful thing is that on this particular day, Christ is passing through Jericho, the city of palm trees, and there's a, a main street full of trees and full of businesses. And it's his opportunity to see Christ, and he's determined to do that. Uh, It's difficult to explain how he feels, difficult to understand how he feels. I mean, he's determined enough to, once he can't get through the crowd, probably no one lets him anyway, he's quite willing just to run ahead and to climb up a large sycamore tree. Now, it's a bit of an embarrassing thing to do, but I'm quite sure, I mean, that's got very heavy foliage, so I'm quite sure he's pretty much hidden in there. And if you're going to ask me what exactly he plans to do, the answer to that is, I don't really know. I don't really know. I know he would like to speak to him, but on the other hand, does he want to do it publicly? Do you know how that feels yourself? Sometimes you want to go and speak to a Christian, but, oh, you can't. You want to, but you can't. I've known people who have come to the door of a church and didn't have the courage to come in. So they went through the whole process of getting ready, driving, going up to a church door, looking at it long and hard, and driving away. I've known people doing that with a prayer meeting. And if you ask them what's going on in their heads, there's a lot going on in their heads. There's a lot going on in their hearts. Does Zacchaeus want to be seen? Not really. But does he want to see Christ? Yes. How is he going to do it? Who knows? One thing for sure, he has got to see the man for himself. He's got to see the man for himself. But the fact is that to understand why he's looking for Christ that day, you've got to shift your focus away from Zacchaeus and onto Christ. Because as I said at the beginning, this is not actually about a sinner seeking the Saviour, it is about the Saviour seeking the sinner. And maybe it helps us to understand Zacchaeus better if we just switch the whole thing round and start looking at it from Christ's point of view, because at last he's in Jericho, just before his crucifixion, and he's passing through that city because he is seeking and saving that which is lost. And we can go further than that. And we can say that it's not just the Son of God who's seeking and saving that which is lost because the Father is seeking him too and so is the Holy Spirit seeking him. There's a wonderful trinity of parables in Luke chapter 15 the lost son and the lost coin and the lost sheep where you see the Father, the Spirit and the Son uh, planning for the salvation of sinners and seeking them out and finding them. Well we have the same thing here. The father is seeking out Zacchaeus. (coughs) The father chose him from eternity and has already sent the Holy Spirit into the heart of Zacchaeus to prepare him to work in his life and to make him ready for this occasion. So that Third person of the whole of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, He has come in to work in his heart, to work in His thoughts and in His conscience, and to convict him of his sin. I think it's important in that connection to remember that none of this uh, happens in a vacuum. There's always a context. I'm quite sure that Zacchaeus. If he didn't see and hear the Lord at some point himself over the preceding three years, I'm quite sure he met plenty others who did see and hear the Lord, including tax collectors like himself. I mean, we read about an incident where the Lord called Levi. Now, Levi has another name. He's called Matthew. And of course, he became one of the twelve apostles. He was a tax collector for Rome. We're told that the Lord simply passed by his tax collecting booth and said, Levi, Follow me. And Levi, of course, followed him. The next thing Levi did, or Matthew, was Matthew took the Lord to his house and gathered a large number of tax collectors in the house uh, to eat with the Lord Jesus Christ. A large number of tax collectors. Now, we needn't think Zacchaeus doesn't know anything about that. We needn't think Zacchaeus doesn't know any of these people tax collectors all knew each other Uh, they needed to because no one else was really interested in knowing them but a large number of tax collectors came and sat with the Lord and heard the gospel and they heard it of course gladly I mean the Lord at one point rebuked other people because, because the tax collectors and the sinners were pressing into the kingdom when they themselves were staying out and we've seen that in our own lives too We've seen, maybe you're here today and you can say that there are people now who are following Christ that were way behind you not that long ago. I mean, you you were even then close to the kingdom. You were even then attending church and you were even then listening to the gospel and they were nowhere. And now they're in and they're enthusiastically drinking in and hearing what you're still at a distance from. And that's what the Lord said to them. Even the harlots, And the tax collectors are pressing into the kingdom before you. Now Zacchaeus knows all that. He knows that this Lord Jesus has changed the lives of people like himself. It's a wonderful thing when you know you're deceased and when you start to feel troubled in your conscience to know that there's a person who can seem to address that situation. You know, people will do incredible things for peace. They do incredible things to get some quiet in their life, some assurance, and some joy and gladness. And it's a wonderful thing to know that there is someone who can deal with all the things that are taking these things away. And just the previous day, Jericho was full of the news that two blind men who had always sat there begging by the roadside, had been marvelously healed by the Lord Jesus Christ and were told that when the Lord healed them that everyone who was around witnessing that all praised God. Zacchaeus can't be immune to that. He can't be immune. And so the Holy Spirit is seeking him out too. I wonder if you're seeking yourself out. The Holy Spirit is the woman in chapter 15 of Luke who is brushing the house sweeping the house until she finds the coin that is lost brushing away of course that kicks up dust and the Lord can kick up dust in your own life like that as he's bringing sins home, providences are pressing you in, you're troubled you're troubled, you're a sinner and you're going to hell and there's no solution no solution except this man of whom he has heard. He actually has mercy on tax collectors. He saves people like me. He saves people like you. He saves all kinds of people. Paul was amazed that Christ saved himself. I was a blasphemer, he says, and I was arrogant. Arrogant. I was injurious he had mercy upon me, a chief of sinners, as a pattern for all of you who would believe. So the Father sent the Spirit, the Spirit is seeking him out, but lo and behold, here today in Jericho, the Son at last comes to find him. And unless the Son finds us, we're not saved. He comes to Jericho to find him. Now, I said right at the beginning that the real story here is not Zacchaeus seeking Christ, but Christ seeking Zacchaeus. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And it's one of these things, once, once you see that in the passage, it suddenly comes out everywhere. It comes out in little bits of the story that you didn't notice it before. That's like the sovereignty of God, anyway. Uh, once you see the gracious sovereignty of God, you see it everywhere. Once you find it in one passage in the Bible, lo and behold, it's in every passage in the Bible. Once you see it at work in your life, it's at work all over your life. I'm always mystified by people who don't understand the gracious sovereignty of God, that that God is at work as a first cause and as a first mover in the work of grace as in everything else. How can you not see that? How can you not see that? Look, for example, here at verse 5. Verse 5. We're told in verse 5 that when Jesus came to the place where Zacchaeus had gone up into the tree, he looked up and saw him. Why did he look up? Do you expect to see people in trees? Well, not unless you do. He had a reason for looking up. He had a reason for looking up. He was on a mission to find someone. That's the story here, he looked up to find a man hiding in a sycamore tree. You'll notice again that he addresses him by name, Zacchaeus. He says, where did that come? From? How does he know him? I'm quite sure Zacchaeus is absolutely staggered to hear that name. How does he know me? How could he possibly be interested in me? This, of course, is the saviour who said to Nathaniel, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you ruminating, meditating, and praying underneath the fig tree. Nathaniel said, how do you know me? He said, before I saw you, I saw you under the fig tree. Here, of course, Christ calls him by name. Why? Because he's his own sheep and he calls him by name. I know my sheep. I call them by their own name. And when the gospel comes to you, it comes to you like that. It comes to you personally. In fact, it moves from being a gospel that's for everybody but you to being a gospel that's for you alone. That's the way it changes. Uh, Sometimes you're sitting in church and You could probably feel like Zacchaeus felt. I'm quite sure when he started to be convicted of sin that one thing the devil would say to him was, well, you're wasting your time anyway, Zacchaeus. You're wasting your time. The Lord's not interested in you. And uh, the devil can move very quickly to saying that to you, that, that the gospel is not for you. But once the Lord begins to speak to you in the preaching of the word especially, it absolutely is for you. It's identifying you highly individualised, it's highly personalised, Zacchaeus whenever the Lord uses a name like that there's something profound going on, especially a person who's never met him before, Zacchaeus he says this is for you so the Lord looks up, calls him by name and then utters the words I must dine at your house today must, must where's that necessity coming What kind of necessity is it? (coughs) Well, it's the same kind of necessity that we saw months ago now in connection with the woman of Samaria. When John tells us in his Gospel that Christ must, needs, go through Samaria. Had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through Samaria? To meet the Samaritan woman. And, of course, to bring the Gospel to the Samaritan village. This is the same. I must go to your house today, Zacchaeus. This is assigned to me. This is my father's portion. This is what I must do. I was quite sure that people in Jericho would wonder where he would stay, that, and where he would eat. Would it be with the hundreds of priests? Because Jericho actually, in spite of being cursed a long time ago, ended up being a priestly city where many priests lived. Uh, Was that where he would stay? No. Uh, The last house... The last house you would have thought the Lord would have dinner in, on that day was the house of the chief tax collector of Jericho. Everybody knows him. Nobody likes him. But that's where the gospel ends up coming. Grace is an amazing thing. Grace is such an amazing thing that we sometimes find it difficult to deal with. Until we have a good, long, hard look at ourselves which we seldom do. Which we seldom do. This is my itinerary for today, the Lord says. I have to go through Jericho, not just to find the two blind beggars by the roadside, but to find you as well. In other words, it is Christ doing the seeking. Now, I'll tell you a mark of every Christian in here today, and every Christian everywhere. When you ask them to give their testimony, They will give their testimony in a way that says, not I found the Lord, but the Lord found me. There are a lot of testimonies that are I, 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 and I did this and I did that and I did this and I believed. But the person who has come to know the Lord of sovereign grace, the Lord of might and power, the Lord who really transforms and changes the soul, will speak about how the Lord found him or her. That 's where the emphasis will always lie that's why a passage like this is all about Christ, really not about Zacchaeus and that's why, like I said earlier, once you see this the whole Bible is a, this, the whole Bible is about God and it's about God finding this church that's really what it's about. it starts up there and ends up there, not here it's all about him and what does Zacchaeus do well. He starts off as well as he could. He does what the Lord tells him to do. The Lord effectively tells him to hurry up, to get down from the tree and to go home. And we're told that Zacchaeus hurries up. And he goes home and he immediately prepares a meal for the Lord. I think he does that with real gladness of heart because he knows that this Lord is gracious to him. The, The Lord who had mercy on other tax collectors is a Lord who has mercy on a chief tax collector too. Not just on sinners, but on the chiefs of sinners. And of course the people complain. But he turns round and says, Lord, he says, half of what I've got I give to the poor, and if I've taken by false accusation. Now that's not an if of, oh I genuinely don't know. It's wh- wherever this is the case, that's what he says. Wherever this is the case, he says, I am giving back fourfold. It's a strange thing, but according to the law, the only thing that had to be repaid fourfold was sheep. Everything else was to be, uh, if you took something by theft, it was to be repaid in full plus a fifth extra. Now you say, well, did he get it wrong? <sighs> Probably. It wasn't a regular church attendant. In fact, they wouldn't let him into the synagogue anyway wasn't allowed into the synagogue. It's not surprising if he didn't know his law inside out. Uh, Nobody really does. But it's the heart of the man that matters, is it not? It's not whether he's got the details of what restitution actually requires that matters. It's his heart that matters. Lord, he says, my money's not my own anymore. I'll gladly give half away. And what's more, any wrongdoing, I don't care. He says, I'll give it back fourfold whether that be what the law requires or not because that's what grace does grace transforms a person, it's an interesting thing that Zacchaeus' name means pure, pure and he was far from pure but he's no pure at least he's pure in heart blessed are the pure in heart that they shall see God and salvation came to his house that day because the saviour came to his house that day and at last he lives up to his name I often wonder how many of us live up to our names like that I mean, someone here is called John which means grace is your own life full of grace I mean, Catherine uh, pure is your own life pure uh, Margaret, Pearl are you a pearl yourself Lord what's your own name do you live up to it is your name a miss no are you walking round with something that just isn't, isn't um, who you are from, the, from Till that day, his name was a joke. From that day onwards, he was blessed. This day has salvation come. The Holy Spirit was working all right, but this day, when the Son found him, salvation came to that house. Well, friends, we can say that the Lord is passing by ourselves too. And he's also actually offering when you think about it to come and to dine with you when I was just finishing on preparation on this sermon the, the words came to me in connection with that and it's, it's, it's very very appropriate um, behold I stand at the door and knock and that's what the you could think of the saviour just passing through passing by yourself today it's a risky thing when the saviour passes by because you could always let him go You could always let him go. I'm coming at it just now from your side. But here the Lord says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, it's wonderful, isn't it? I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. That's the dining that's represented here in Zacchaeus' house. It's a, a fellowship dining. Uh, someone who has found the Lord well that will happen to you too if you call upon this Lord yourself ask him to cleanse you to make you pure in heart he'll come into your heart and he'll dine with you and of course in the best way possible your life will never be the same again let us pray O Lord, we call upon you as the one who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, the one who takes a, a chief among sinners and uh, makes him a trophy of grace. And uh, we have lived long enough to know that people can't change themselves. We have no power whatsoever to make ourselves any different from what we are and always have been. Even if we modify this and modify that, we are still who we were. But how wonderful that there is a Saviour passing by who can change all that, who can give us a new birth and create us in his own marvellous image and likeness. Will you not do so, even today, for even one poor soul? In the name of our Saviour we pray. Amen. Let's uh, close our singing again from uh, God's word in Psalm 119 and at verse 57 This is coming at it again from the From man's side, thou my sure portion art alone, which I did choose, O Lord. We have to do that and to resolve. I have resolved and said that I would keep thy holy word. With my whole heart I did entreat thy face and favour free, according to thy gracious word, be merciful to me. I thought upon my former ways. And Zacchaeus is doing that, and did my life well try, and it doesn't look good for him. But to thy testimonies pure, my feet then turned I. I did not stay nor linger long, as those that slothful are, but hastily. And remember, the Lord said, make haste, Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus made haste. I'm sure his steps were quickened by the fact that the Lord had called him by name. So hastily thy laws to keep, myself I did prepare. These four stanzas, let's stand and sing. (coughs)